Well, I want to say good morning to you and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as we continue our series of Hope in a Hopeless World, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19 together. November 2nd, 2016. It was one of the greatest days and nights in all of history. Well, I guess it really depends on which side you were on. See, that was the night that the Chicago Cubs broke a 108-year-old championship drought. Now, as a lifelong Cubs fan, that was an incredible night. For those fans of the Cleveland Indians, it probably wasn't as great of a night for them. They were on the other side. You know, this morning we, we want to talk about that good news, bad news type of situation. We want to talk about a day that's going to be even greater uh, than this supposed great day of the Cubs winning a World Series. It's a day that began long ago with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and now culminating uh, here in the book of Revelation. It's a day that we honestly have no idea when it's going to happen. But we have all the faith, all the reason in the world to believe that it's going to happen. It's going to be a glorious day. But then again, it, it still depends on which side you're on. Uh, the one big thing for this morning is that Jesus will return to defeat his enemies. And this is the return of Christ, really a culmination of this book that we have been studying here. So let's look at it. Revelation chapter 19, and beginning in verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, uh, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together into the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sat on them, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him uh, with which he deceived them that he had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Let's pray together. Fathers, we 
uh, begin this time of study of your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. God, what we are reading here in Revelation is a a grand day for those who love you and long for your return. But it's also a very grim day uh, for those who are rejecting you. And so, Lord, help us to study this uh, as you intend it to be studied. Help us to see the message. Help those that are far from you, God, as you draw them near, help them to come to you today. Help your children to be strengthened to know that evil won't last forever, that there's a glorious day awaiting. So, Father, as always, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the one big thing is that Jesus will return to defeat his enemies. And so we, we want to ask the question, who is coming? Who is this rider on, on the horse? The simple answer is Jesus. Uh, now, maybe you're wondering, how can we know that for sure? Especially uh, because this is the second time in Revelation that there has been an appearance of a white horse. The first time is back in Revelation, and the first rider that comes on that white horse is, uh, he is the the Antichrist. Uh, Remember, anti uh, being false or instead of. Uh, It it is this final ruler who, you know, appears as Jesus, and many are going to believe that he is, in fact, uh, the Messiah. Now, maybe you're wondering, how can we be sure that uh, who we're talking about in both Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. Uh, well, we can see the writer in Revelation 6 comes to, to conquer really with a uh, false promise of peace. Then we, we see his true colors in Revelation 6 when he, he brings war and talked about his, a rider on a uh, red horse here. So he comes with this false idea of peace. Uh, but it doesn't take long for his true colors to genuinely uh, show through. Another way that we know the rider of the white horse in Revelation 6 isn't Jesus is the fact that Scripture teaches Jesus is going to return at the end of this seven-year period known as the tribulation. Uh, However, uh, Revelation 6 is describing uh, really the beginning of that time. And so they are marked by two different time periods. Uh, Another way that we can know uh, that the writer of Revelation 19 is Jesus is uh, by some of the titles that we see here. Uh, John calls this writer the Word of God in verse 13. And the Word is John's favorite title for Jesus. Uh, We see it there in uh, the Gospel of John and some of his other writings. Another title that's found here. Uh, is verse 16, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this was actually a title first uh, given to God by a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. It's found there in Daniel chapter 2. And and it was after uh, Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, your God is the the God of God, the the King of Kings. You know, there's, there's no one else like him. Uh, not only can we know that it's Jesus, 
who is returning here in chapter 19 by his titles, but also the attributes that we see in Revelation 19. Okay, uh, as, as we begin, we can see in verse 11, it says the rider on that horse is faithful. This is a reminder that Jesus is faithful to keep his promises. You know, here's something that's just amazing. God is faithful to his promises, even when we as his children are often so faithless, uh, according to 2 Timothy uh, 2.13. What an incredible encouragement to know that whatever God promises, he's going to do it. That it doesn't depend on us, but rather it, it depends on him. The, the next attribute of God that we see in, also in verse 11 is he's called true. Remember what Jesus says in John 14 and verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We live in a world, we live in a society that is searching for truth. It is constantly trying to redefine truth. And so what we as the church have to do is we have to stand on the truth. We have to proclaim the truth in love. We have to show how God's truth never changes because God never changes. Let let me ask you, have you ever been around somebody who lacks tact, um, but you can really count on them to tell you the truth? You know, I know we don't always like that person, but I'm going to tell you this. We need that person in our life. We need somebody who is going to tell us the the truth, even maybe it hurts us, because the truth that hurts can lead to the truth that changes. Whereas a lie only takes us further and further away. And and really, this is one of the functions of Scripture. You know, it accurately describes who we are. You know, uh, when when people say, oh, well, you know, they have a good heart. You know, the Bible says, no, our, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And, you know, say, oh, well, they're a good person. And, you know, the Bible says there's none good. Now, we don't like those things. We like to believe the best about ourselves. But Scripture telling us the truth ultimately points us to hope. Instead of lying to us and giving us this false assurance, you know, the Bible accurately describes our condition so that it will point us to the solution. Church, we desperately need to base our life on the Word of God because everything else is shifting sand. Let's just talk about for a moment, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but let's talk about this dealing with terms of the of COVID-19. Okay, first, it's not a big deal. You know, kids couldn't get it. It's not airborne. Masks are unnecessary. Then all of a sudden, you know, there at the end of March, everything shuts down, including schools. Kids are getting it. Maybe it's airborne. Maybe it's not. Masks are necessary. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I started getting a headache trying to listen to all the changing narratives about this virus and going, who's telling the truth? Now, I listen, I don't know who to believe. 
Honestly, I'm still not 100% sure that I should be believing any of what's being said about it. But that's not true about God. You know, if somebody told you 99 things that were going to happen, and every one of them happened, when they told you about a hundredth thing that was going to happen, do you think you would be inclined to believe them? Sure. Why? They have a track record of being truthful. Well, God has told us much more than just a hundred things uh, that were going to happen, and every single one of them has. And so, how can we trust the Bible? Because everything it has said is go- that's going to happen up to this point, it's happened. Can, can we say that about our word? I mean, have there have there been times that maybe, um, you know, we, we our, our kids come to us and and say, "Daddy, Daddy, Daddy, uh, let let's go play." Uh, give me a minute. They come back ten minutes late. Come on, Dad, let's go. I, I, I'll be right there. The next thing you know, it's the next morning, and you never went there. God never does that. God is always truthful. It's, it's sometimes, listen, I get it. It hurts. You know, when, when Scripture is pointing out sin in my life, it hurts. But only as the Spirit uses the Word to hurt me can it point me to my hope and to my help. I'm reminded of the words of Proverbs 27, and verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Listen, church, the world is going to lie to you. They're they're under the control of the father of lies, Satan. I I hate to say it, but sometimes even people in church are going to lie to you or they're going to lie about you. Yeah, the Bible may sting at times, but it's never going to lie to you. And the Bible's never going to lead you in the wrong direction because all of the Bible points to the truth. Who is Jesus? You know, there's another attribute we see uh, of Jesus in the text. It's that he's all-knowing. There, verse 12, it, it says his eyes are as a flame of fire. Uh, when a precious metal is put into the fire, what, what's the purpose? Uh, the purpose is to burn off all of the impurities. So what we see here in the text with this description of Jesus is Jesus is looking at all of the world and he is seeing the true motives behind what people do. God goes past what we do. He looks beyond what we say. And he understands the motivation, the heart behind what we're saying, behind what we are doing. The Bible reminds us in Luke eight seventeen, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Does that scare you? i, I got to be honest, when you read it initially, you're like, oh, that's not good. Praise God for His faithfulness. That those who come to Christ, who, who have been saved, were no longer condemned. But nothing's going to remain secret. At some point, it's going to be revealed. 
You know, as the saying goes, you may fool all the people some of the time, some people all the time, but you're never going to fool God any other time. The final attribute that lets us know that this is, in fact, Jesus coming on this white horse in Revelation 19 is the fact that God is sovereign. Again, verse 12, it, it refers to him as having many crowns. Now, this would take readers back to what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18. He's talking to the disciples before he gives the Great Commissioning. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. You know, while we as people, we like to have controls, control over things, uh, especially when it comes to our own life, we have to understand that uh, control for us as humans is just an illusion. Satan and his minions, all right, they're nothing more than dogs on a leash. They can't do anything that God doesn't permit. Now, some people get nervous when you when you start talking about God being sovereign and, and all of that, but really it, it's meant to encourage us. It it reminds us that a good, gracious, merciful, loving, heavenly father is in control of everything including the bad things. Because he is in control, he can take what is bad or or what is evil and he can turn it around for his glory and your good. So no matter what is happening in your life right now, whether good or, or bad, we can trust that God is up to something in our lives. There is a plan and a purpose behind it. What a great encouragement for for the church in John's day, right? This was a church that was experiencing persecution. People were losing their freedom, uh, their possessions, their life. And John's going, listen, God's going to permit it for a while, but it's not always going to be this way. God is still in control. Keep trusting. Keep persevering. And I mean, that's a great encouragement for you and I it may be over our head but it's still under God's feet and so we can trust him that God is going to be in charge of this and he's going to take care of it for us now hopefully we've been able to establish who it is uh, that is on this horse we need to ask another important question why is he coming and it's to fulfill his promises. Uh, remember earlier, it, it was revealed that God is faithful. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah's coming. Uh, we also have Jesus' words in Matthew 24. But we can also see some of Jesus' last words here in the book of Revelation. Three times, in fact, in Revelation 22, we read this. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, he will bring his peace and his kingdom with him. But his return is also to fulfill some other promises. Promises that, frankly, they're not good for those who are choosing to reject the gospel. You see, one of the promises that Jesus' return is going to fulfill is that he is going to judge Satan. If we were to go into the beginning of Revelation 20, we see that when Jesus returns, Satan is uh, cast into this 
this bottomless pit for a, a thousand years. Now, that's not the end of him. All right, there is going to be a time in which he is uh, let go for a short time. How long is a short time? A short time. We, we don't know. But then finally, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we see that Satan is finally and fully dealt with. What Jesus started at the cross with his death and his resurrection, he is going to finish with his return. Evil may have its heyday now, but it will be destroyed by God. What an encouragement. You know, the next promise that Jesus has made is is that he's going to judge the world. This is a a reference to the world's systems. It's false religions. Uh, We saw it in Revelation 17 and 18. All the false religions, all the corrupt political systems, all, all the sins of the world will be judged by God. But there's one more promise that's going to be fulfilled that we're going to talk about. And it's the promise of Jesus to remove anyone who has rejected him. If I was going to sum this, sum this part up, I would say no one is escaping God's judgment. There's going to be no excuses accepted on this day. The the only question on this uh, quote-unquote final exam is who is Jesus to you? It's a question that Jesus first asked his disciples back in Matthew 16. He's on a, a boat with them and he asks them the question, Who do people say that I am? The disciples give some answers. You know, some say you're John the Baptist or uh, Elijah or Jeremiah or, or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus makes it personal. He looks at him and says, but who do you say that I am? Forget what everybody else is saying about Jesus. You're not going to answer for them. Who do you say I am? You know, Everybody I've ever met in the world has an opinion about who Jesus is. Some believe he was a good man. Some believe he was a prophet. Many believe that he he was a teacher. Some even believe that he was just a made-up person meant to teach moral lessons. Uh, I think the the Christian author uh, C.S. Lewis captures a powerful truth in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis wrote, quote, I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man that says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that up to us. He did not intend to. 
Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. End quote. You see, only surrendering to his grace by faith can save you from the judgment that is coming. A judgment that is offensive to many. We we don't like to hear about judgment, about hell, about sin. Yet, for the God-called pastor, it's unavoidable. Because of what the Bible says, and our calling to teach what it says, no matter how inconvenient or how painful it may be. The one call that we see over and over in Scripture that is directed to those who are far from God and still dead in their sin is this. Repent. Maybe you want to cast off the belief of some coming eternal judgment. Maybe you're trying to rationalize in your mind uh, that a truly good God would never send someone to hell. But let us understand that Jesus spoke more often about hell than he did heaven. Fact of the matter, I would even argue um, that everyone believes to a degree that there's a hell. Had a great conversation with somebody about it uh, recently. You know, they, uh, we believe that pedophiles, rapists, murderers, and, and what we deem as truly evil people, uh, whether it's Hitler or uh, Saddam Hussein or others, uh, we believe they deserve hell. The problem often is we don't see ourselves on the same level as those people. Yet Scripture says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but breaks it in one point, he is guilty of breaking all the law. And so, let me ask you, have you ever lied? Uh, By the way, um, what we often call little white lies, it's still a lie. Have you ever stolen something? Maybe it's insignificant, like, you know, a a pen from work or... uh, you took that little bottle of shampoo from the hotel or a towel. Have you ever murdered somebody? Now you're going, well, obviously, Pastor, I, I'm, I haven't. I'm, I'm here. But before you answer that, let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten really angry at somebody and, and you just lost your cool and you yelled at them? Or you, you just lost your cool with somebody and it, about something that really wasn't their fault? Jesus said, you just aimed a loaded gun, pulled the trigger, and took their life. Now to the other charge about, well, if God was loving, he wouldn't send anyone to hell. It's true, God is is a God of love. But the often most mentioned attribute of God in Scripture is not his love, rather it's his holiness, his, his sinlessness. If you want to know how God feels about sin, look no further than the cross. 
Because it was at the cross that God judged his son. Not for anything that Jesus ever did, but for everything you and I have ever done. God's holiness demands judgment and payment for that sin. Yet in his love, God sent Jesus to be our substitute. In his love, Jesus took that judgment in our place. You have heard me say this many times. The scandal of the cross is not uh, that God would allow someone to choose hell over him. The scandal of the cross is that God would save any of us uh, from what we truly deserve. I want you to listen to Jesus' words in Luke 13.3. It says, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is more than being sorry. It is more than crying. It is an understanding of the vileness of our sin and, and the hatred that God has for it and how it breaks God's heart. And it's, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Listen, if all we do is sin and we go, oh God, I'm sorry, but we continue to run back to that same thing, then we need to legitimately question, am I expressing a worldly sorrow that leads to death or am I being repentant? God's call to us today is to not just be sorry for what we have done but to run from what we have done and run into his arms, understanding that it is only in his presence that we can be saved. Which means, church, you and I need to regularly pray for the lost and intentionally share the gospel Just as the gospel is the only hope for you and I here today, it is the only hope for the world that is far from God. Who's your one? Who are you praying for? Who are you crying out to God for? Who are you intentionally sharing the gospel with? To say that I'm a Christian means that I am to live as Christ lived. Which means I must obey Him. Are you? Or do we need to get on our knees before God and cry out to Him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, what an incredible truth and a great encouragement that one day you're going to return and all the wrong in the world is going to be set right. And on that day, Lord, we will be more alive than we've ever been. So God, for those that you have saved by your grace, it is a glorious truth that we look for, that we long for. And you returning. But God, break our hearts for those that are lost. 
break our hearts from those that are the closest to the gates of hell right now. Help us to not stand in judgment. Let us not uh, berate them with our words, but move us with compassion and compel us to share the gospel and to pray for them and to plead for them on a daily basis until the day they surrender to your grace or the day that one of us is no longer here. Father, we long to see you. But until that day, may we obey you. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.